Batman Adventures, episode 22, The Clock King, and another episode for you of I Am The Night. I'm Steve, and with me is... Adam, his delightful son, partner in crime, the one he goes to to instruct and explain all of the various minutiae of Batman lore, because as I went into this episode, ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> oh, come on, you've, you've always had the great teacher air, and it's something that I've grown up with. And Thank you. Loved and appreciated, and it's never wavered. It's always been in full force because even in this episode, even today, I went in thinking that the Clock King was a creation of the Batman the animated series, much like Harley Quinn. But apparently, that is not so. This is a much more classic villain than I was expecting. Well, in some cases, you're right because Temple Fugit is a creation of Batman the animated series, but the Clock King as a character is not. But we'll go into him later because obviously. Let's talk about the episode first that, and the talent and uh, work that's gone into it. And then we'll go into, like you said, the minutiae of uh, who the Clock King is, was. Uh, there's been several versions. But I'm actually sad that Temple Fugit isn't one of the ones from the comic. Because even though he was the animated series version, he did um, inspire later versions in the comics and... Well, the reintroduction of the character, because he was in the round in the 60s, then he vanished until the show. So you could say he was the, oh, very DC term, he was the rebirth of wow. the clock. <laughs> Sorry about that. That's fine, it's fine. We'll forgive you, because apparently even Batman's not beyond making puns in this episode. Batman beyond? Oh dear, that was uh, a one thing you try. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Stop. Um, I th- can see... Let it out, let it run out. I can see the need to want to reinvent and reinvigorate the character that's very obviously quite old and has been done in different ways across different medias to try and get like a clear version of him. But this version, the straight-laced, obsessed with order and rigidity and clockwork, uh, uh, the manicured needing to follow a plan and follow some structure is uh, a character I've always sort of seen in lots of different kinds of media and it's one that I've sort of... Not identified with, but like understood and respected. Yeah, so absolutely. this particular villain is one I can definitely get along with, even if his name is a really, really bad Latin pun for time flies. Yes, Temple Fugit. Tempus Fugit. Yes, absolutely. But what I will say, and I'm not just saying this because I love this series so much, all the other Clock Kings have been a bit meh. In fact, in comics, he's always been a bit of a joke, particularly in the Justice League International days where... His team of the Injustice League was beaten more often than multitudes of eggs around the universe throughout time. I mean, they were worse than useless. In fact, they were beaten so often that they became one of the original suicide squads. They were just always getting captured and locked up. But this version of Clock King, he's a little bit scary. Hmm. He's so organised. And his obsession and uh, obsessive-compulsive disorder with doing everything on time in a well-organised uh, manner shows that his knowledge of that side of Gotham, train timetables, clocks, uh, the way everything's planned and arranged, is on a par with Batman's. And even though he might not be as physically capable, because of his knowledge, he was actually a really good foil for Batman in this episode. It's the... Intelligence that you get knowing the routines of things around your city to that degree and to that detail does make you seem very visibly insidious. Yeah. It does make you seem very shifty and hard to trust, but it also gives you the ability to be able to rest on that knowledge and the ability to plan around it. Because we see 
that scene in the bank vault where mm. he does almost get Batman. Yeah. Batman is almost destroyed, which is a surprising, surprising thing to see. We also see him being able to match Batman because of the way he knows the overall geography of Gotham and his ability to keep balance on a very thin uh, grand clock tower arm as when Batman couldn't. Because I figure that after the seven years of him trying to plan his revenge, he's one of the few people who could stick to a workout schedule. Oh yeah, he's literally, he's planned that revenge on Mayor Hill Hmm. so intricately. Like you say, not just that, the the part where they're in the clock tower Hmm. and he's walking across cogs and wheels and spinning levers that are clearly oiled. And he knows the timing and how to balance them perfectly. He probably spent every waking hour after coming out of prison planning that revenge. Yes. And it's terrifying. It's absolutely scary. When you get someone who is methodical and deliberate in their actions, they can do just about anything, which is why he's such a formidable foe in this episode. Absolutely. Could not agree more. Um, like you said, let's go back to what you mentioned about the, the thing in the in the vault where he not only locks Batman in, his trap, a pump which is sucking out all the air, is rigged to blow up if Batman tampers with it, and he's studied Batman so well. And this is Batman who's still a figure of the light and not a public persona. He's watched footage that he can. He's probably, I actually actually think, he's probably been on crime scenes just to observe Batman in action. To know how long it takes him to throw a punch. Yeah. To know how powerful his... uh, Welder, the settling torch, is burning through stuff. To, to counteract Batman getting out of that vault is uncanny. I mean, that's Joker level planning and, and methodology. It's without any of the Joker's Bonkers. manic bonkersness, because the Joker would never go to such extremes. Because on another off day, with as few resources to get himself out of it. Batman may have been destroyed, which is a scary thing to think about. That just shows the methodical, deliberate nature and the cold, unthinking logic behind the way this character operates. Absolutely. He was saved by analog 90s tech. Oh, I love that so much. Anyone who is of my generation remember that cassettes were a rival to records, to vinyl, because they were smaller and more portable, and the fact you could put almost perfectly two albums on one cassette because most albums ran 40-45 minutes and a 90 minute tape can have an album on each side or a whole double album but the bane of their existence was having to clean the cassette recorder's heads because of uh, rust and magnetic debris and when the tapes got chewed up no amount of pencils could save those no amount of pencils could save those because when they were cut well sometimes I'd perform surgery but even the best magic tape eventually will squeeze out the glue and F up your tape recorder. But that's another thing. But anyone who's ever used cassettes a lot will remember trying to get them untangled and pulling them out and undoing the knots and whatever else. But if you do tie up tape, it is strong. As a thin ribbon, that wouldn't work. But the fact that Batman pulled out all that tape, which is about a mile long, if anyone's ever used the tape cassette, those tapes are like, they went on forever. To lift that bomb, which was on a vibrational thing, slowly wheel it using the tape reel to the vault door and then let it go with the batarang to blow off the vault door is just typical Batman outside the box thinking. It's brilliant. 
It really is, and it's somewhat dating into its time, but there's a certain charm around seeing that yeah. kind of material used to save the day, but it still shows the resourcefulness of Batman that he can still think himself out of what looks like an impossible situation. Absolutely. It's, it's just him always having a way out of even something that there's no way out of and yeah. I love that about the character. these days with none of that tech he would probably have to like rig up something himself something similar with like a bat line but there's something quite nice about him using the loophole that the villain put into the vault as his own way of getting out oh I like that he's actually used the villain's own Hubris against him, yeah, yeah, that's nice. I didn't think of it that way because that whole tape was him just gloating. Look how smart I am. Look how, look how insidious I am. You I was able to think. Smart. I'm smarter. Yeah, love that. Very, very good. And obviously, apart from Mister Fugit, we also get to see Mayor Hill before he was mayor riding on a subway, which is uh, very good of a public servant of that ability. Alfred, uh, Jim Gordon, again. Bit parts, but so, so themselves. I will talk very heavily about how strong a supporting cast needs to be in a, any kind of TV show. They just need to be well-defined, clear visions of themselves. And it's really nice to see someone who is very, very minor, like Mayor Hill, have that kind of thought put into where he came from and then the huge jump in time that would lead for him to be, oh, a very important lawyer to Mayor. And it's another nice thing to see just the extent of what Gotham is like visually, because I can definitely say that um, Christopher Nolan used the gritty, run-down, rusty, graffiti-stricken oh, yeah. underground uh, rail And Todd Phillips did as well in um, Joker. Just to see how run-down and somewhat ugly Gotham is. But it's a good contrast to see like that sort of environment for a conversation between these two well-to-do, very well-educated, very driven gentlemen in nice business suits absolutely then we get the wonderful visuals and the wonderful focus of Alfred and it's amazing to me that they have <laughs> it's amazing to me that they have a, an uplink to the back computer in their Rolls Royce yes I, I love that but of course but not just that his dry wit his oh. sarcasm his when they park in that alleyway in the Rolls Royce and Alfred said, oh, this is one of the most uh, upper-class uh, alleyways in all of Gotham. And a rat jumps onto the hood of the, the car. The rat looks at him. No, but the rat looks at him and shakes his head when he says it's a nice place. Because yeah. the rat's like, no, this is not a nice place. I'm a rat. I know this is not yeah. a nice place. So, but it's, it's a little touch of that. And like you say, that supporting cast is vital. But so well-realised. And they're like our eyes into the story, aren't they? Because obviously, we can't put ourselves totally in the position of being Batman or being the villain but people like Alfred people like Jim Gordon are our window into those stories but do you not find that giving people like Hill that kind of backstory and history just enriches the whole storytelling process it makes the pantheon of characters so much more real it makes everything feel lived in and homely enough so that we as viewers can feel like we are a part of this world looking through on another plane and we can see the viewpoints that we have from yeah. like the main viewpoint characters of like Gordon and Alfred um, we get the chance to feel as though we are comradely and working alongside 
Batman, if we look through the eyes of Commissioner Gordon, and we get the chance to put one of the most powerful, imposing men in the world, a man, super, a human that Superman fears, yeah, he, but he can still be talked down to by his butler, who's, who David is behind. So That's still to come a great long ways away down the road, but we still get that sense that they have that much history because of how yeah. well realised Alfred's witty repartee and, but love and respect there is. That's why probably these characters are known as the Bat Family rather than Team Batman or whatever else. Like this Team Flash um, okay. in the Flash TV show, but this is the Bat Family because that's how they are. Even Jim, hmm. um, the little classic touches of right at the end of the show, uh, Batman standing in the back in the shadows and Gordon standing in front of him and they're talking to each other. But that's just that classic that. Well, it's it's actually quite visual. Batman's got Jim's back. That's as it's as simple as as, as that, and and vice versa. And little touches like that just sing to me. More than that, he's got his got his back in a visual sort of mention, but yeah. still as an unclear figure in the shadow. Yes. While Jim Absolutely. is the vision of uh, public justice yes. out there in the light. Totally, so many levels to it. So. Going back to the main two characters then, Batman and the Clock King. Batman, again, we've seen that brilliant detective and problem-solving skills, but we have to, again, we mentioned it a couple of weeks back when he's running over the rooftops holding a grown man on his shoulders. In this episode, we see him running up the stairs of a skyscraper getting changed as he's doing it. He goes up the first couple of levels as Bruce Wayne, and then all of a sudden, third, level three, level four, he's Batman. So, quick change training and tr- running on the move. Wow. The quick change training and the changing on the move, I can very easily see he got when he was with Zatara, learning his ventriloquism, working on the oh, second so stuff. I'm so glad you said that. I know who he was trained by. <laughs> you I'm taught. sorry. There's nothing to be sorry for. You just have to respect that I do Wait know what I'm talking about. get to those episodes. That's going to be good. That's going to be really good. You have to respect that I know what I'm talking about. <laughs> I'm glad you brought me on to know that I know what I'm talking about. It's another layer of realism that in the moment we can get swept along by the grand heroics of him just being able to be that prepared but when we think about it and we know the character on that deep level we can say oh that's why he was able to do that it's not just a thing that was pulled out of the way he can reasonably do that because we know to be Batman you need to have those levels of skills but more than that it's really interesting to me that that scene took place with no hesitation from Batman and in broad daylight. Yes. We always associate Batman as this figure of fear in the night, but there was something going wrong, there was something causing chaos, and he saw a shadowy unknown figure on the roof. He needed to go investigate. He had all of the Batman gear with him and was up there like a shot without any hesitation and was able to figure out that someone was doing this, saw a someone, and then got the proof that it was to like smear the name of... Mayor Hill. Mm-hmm. He was able to quickly deduce and put those little clues and thought points together in those few seconds. And then when he had enough probable cause, as much plan would need probable cause, was there immediately. Absolutely. And I'm glad you brought up the whole thing that he did this in broad daylight because um, chatting with the DC Comics news team, um, we realised that it's another fairly unique selling point of 
the Birds of Prey movie, which was actually highlighted to us, which we didn't even realise, was highlighted to us by the honest trailer for Birds yes, of Prey. Yes, they said, yes, look at, look at this uh, other unexpected version of Gotham in daylight. Yeah. Ugh. Yes, it's so weird. It's, it's brilliantly done. And now, Mr. Clock King himself. Every one of our shall I say disposition of our ilk is a little bit OCD obviously I'll admit to that I have foibles and things which annoy your mother and possibly you mm. and even myself at, at times but this guy is like next level but breaking from it was his downfall yes it was it was his downfall immediately and it was his downfall that Batman was able to exploit in their final confrontation I would say the one that made you highlight this when we were watching it because you like to talk mm. um, was when it's fine when we got to see his hideout with all of the clocks that tells me that he doesn't really have an obsession with timings and keeping things straight I think he has an obsession with just clocks in general because if he had an obsession with keeping things on time all of those clocks would be set to the correct time yes. and all of those clocks would be ticking in sync all those clocks were different. The ticking was a cacophony. He just likes clocks. Well, we know that the ticking is something that he loves. Hmm. Because when Hill tells him, take a coffee break at 3.15 instead of 3 o'clock, and go and sit outside. He was visibly not comfortable outside until those kids were playing, and the tick-tock, the pop-pop-pop of them catching and throwing yeah. the ball, is what comforted him. So I agree with you. Yeah. Yes, he's obsessed with organisation, but it's more an obsession with clocks. That's why he's called... Clock King, rather than uh, Captain Coordinate, you know that that that's that's the whole thing. But I love his look. Yeah. And do you think that the three o'clock on the glasses is a complete nod to he should have stuck to his guns? Probably, probably. It's just something that he's projecting out just to impose his own will of what he wants to do and how he wants to organise his times and stuff. It's also quite a nice sort of time of the day. It's when afternoon business starts to get to a high point and it's when younger children start to kick out from school. Three o'clock is a very important uh, time in like Western society society and organisation. So it's a normal time that he would want to try and keep on his mind. I love also the whole bowler hat, suit and tie, but the clock hand sword is great. It's just him being a part of the clock in the whole brown suit with the bowler hat. He's like a... Almost has the look of like a 1940s watchmaker. Yes. Which is something I think he's trying to sort of emulate and using a very expensive explosive watches. Mm-hmm. He's very in tune and well wound with all of his clocks and stuff. I'm, I'm so glad you brought that up. The Metronix timer, mm-hmm. um, which is obviously the DC equivalent of Rolex... Um, the most expensive but and I don't think that's the whole point of it it's not how expensive it was the accuracy it's because that's the best you can get yeah. it doesn't lose time no he, uh, when it's something you love an aficionado would never spare any expense absolutely and even if it was for something like that like weird piece of media to call back to but in my head I'm thinking of Speed with Keanu Reeves because yeah. we see the bomb under yes. the bus made of a cheap gold watch that was given to an ex-police officer just as a thank you for his retirement Clocking would never do that he would use something precise he would be an Omega a Tag Hauer or a Rolex absolutely well now then let's talk a little bit more about Clock King as a character and yes 
Um, don't sell yourself short because Temple Fuji is a creation of this show. Okay. But Clocking himself goes all the way back to the 1960s. He first appeared, believe it or not, this is, you know, I always moan about Arrow being a knockoff Batman. How he doesn't have any of his own villains apart from Vertigo. They're all Batman villains and Batman characters and what the hell are they playing at? I do have to eat a little bit of humble pie here. Is that right? Yes, because Clock King was actually originally a Green Arrow baddie. Wow. Yes, he appeared in World's Finest in the Green Arrow strip back in 1960. And his alter ego was William Tockman. And I don't know if that rings any bells with yes, you. Yes, it does, loosely. That was the character of the Clock King in both Arrow and Flash. Yes. Uh, played by um, both Gotham and... Uh, What's it, uh, I Zombie alumni, the guy who plays Blaine's dad. Yes. The wonderful Robert Nepper, who is a brilliant villain in everything. I always feel sad for him because he was a villain in the heroes. So why is he, this poor man always cast as a baddie? Uh, but he just plays a brilliant, brilliant villain. In this show, he's played by Alan, I think it's Rackins, R-A-C-H-I-N-S, who honestly is a mainstay of US TV in the 80s and the 90s. Uh, Golden Globe and Emmy nominations for his role in LA Law which he was in for about 8 years but this guy's been in everything but people of my era will recognise The Fall Guy Hill Street Blues Knight Rider Quincy um, Heart to Heart all those classic uh, procedural law cop drama action shows of that era he's, he's huge but he's also a bit of a voice acting legend um, obviously clocking in this show and again in Justice League Unlimited he reprises the role but he's also Norman Osborn in the spectacular Spider-Man animated <laughs> series um, oh, he, he's been in literally everything um, wonderful actor but clocking himself after Green Arrow uh, a different clocking altogether who was never actually named he wasn't around for long enough he was only called by a nickname of 10 was a Teen Titans baddie which is why I know him. Um, that was uh, back in the day, uh, 2000, uh, 2008, so long after this, so that was another attempt to reintroduce And he also called himself Clock King or King Clock, so that one's a bit difficult. That was uh, in Teen Titans 56. But then, in since then, there's been like four or five different Clock Kings, all different characters. Uh, the New 52 had Billy Tockman, who might have been a descendant of the original. Um, in Birds of Prey, he was powered by Venom. He was a super-powered Clock King. Uh, there was another guy just called Bill, who could rewind time, who was defeated by Harley Quinn and Power Girl, of all people. Um, that was a funny one. That was <laughs> hilarious. And in Rebirth, in the latest uh, DC era, he was an enemy against uh, Deathstroke. And this Clock King actually kept himself young by feeding on the life force of others. So a completely different take on the character. I think as long as there's an obsession with time, this mantra, this mantle, this identity can be inhabited by lots of different kinds of villains. Because I remember seeing um, that that ability to sort of rewind and manipulate time on a character like this, I think in this show as well, in the Media Laser episode. But it's an interesting sort of morphing that we can get, yeah. that this name could be held by lots of different kinds of villains across comics and against so many different kinds of heroes. But while we were just talking about it, other than the title card, was the term Clock King even used in this episode? No. No, it was well not. spotted, and I'm glad you said that. That 
wasn't used no. in this in this episode at all. Batman has that habit uh, to try and humanise and empathise with the villains by calling them by their names very deliberately, even though they would refer to themselves as their villain the same. He does that to try and get through to them on an emotional level as Batman, the figure of justice and the redeemer, trying to rehabilitate rather than just being this figure in the night trying to deal with people. I think that's fundamentally why he's got such a problem with the Joker because he can't empathise yes, with that level. he can't give him a human. Yeah, absolutely. No matches on Prince, DNA, dental, clothing is custom, no labels, nothing in his pockets, but knives and lint. Name, no other layers. the Joker. But still a fascinating villain here. Oh yeah, and, and one that even did make it onto the 60s Batman TV series for two episodes. He was in uh, Clock King's Crazy Crimes and Clock King Gets Crowned. Because obviously all of those were two-parters. The first part, which always ended in a deadly cliffhanger with Batman and Robin having to get out of a nefarious trap. <laughs> and the second part where they beat the baddie. That old, time-honoured tradition. So yeah, he was played by Walter Slezak in the, the Batman TV show, but... Yeah, from 1960 to the present, he's been around. But honestly, this version for the animated series is my favourite. Because he's yeah. just cool. He's just calculating, deliberate, forward-thinking, and cold and uncompromising. There's something very powerful about a villain like that who just knows what they're going to do, knows that they have planned it so perfectly, and will continue it just because they can. I like the fact as well that in one version um, he was even helping out Mad Hatter um, in a plot and it turns out that that version of Cocking was actually Mad Hatter's brother, Morris um, Tetch. So, so many variations. But I would like to see this version done properly in the comics because I, I love this this version. This is the version I would like to see again. This is a version I would personally try to write with if I were ever in that castle. But this was a lovely little slice, a lovely little stitch in time to get this character down. Very happy to see him here. Absolutely. Right. As always, let's look at the episode as a whole. Any main takeaways? Any favourite moments? Any goods, bads, uglies? I think we covered a lot of my highlights just as we were talking. It was nice to see that even though we are so many episodes into the series, we're still getting first appearances mm -hmm. of villains. Sure, they're not going to be as grand as the ones we've all seen before, and we've had our fourth or fifth appearance of the Joker, and now our second appearance of Scarecrow. We're still getting the possibility of, a new, of newer faces that have grand gimmicks to them. We can see that they're going to be a little bit more minor someone we haven't really seen since the 60s but it's still nice to see that there are new introductions to be made and that we know there are many more to come of course absolutely well said now my highlights because I'm a huge comic book nerd mm. are little moments like Brayfogle Lane and Toth Street of course name Norm Brayfogle arguably the greatest uh, detective comics um, artist because of his covers and the fact that he drew that strip for years and years and years so much so that he and Alan Grant the writer got given their own show uh, titled Shadow of the Bat purely on the strength of the brilliance they were doing in Detective Comics they created Ventriloquist and Scarface wow. they created Anarchy um, these guys oh, I, I love that team up and when um, well, whenever I saw their name on a comic I'd buy it mm -hmm. and of course Alex Toth um, a little bit 
crazy due to uh, documents about the guy, but if there's a finer comic book artist or storyteller, um, I can name very few. He's one of these people that even the greats revere as an artist. Simple, stark. Honestly, he would have been a great fit for this show or for the Batman Adventures costume. Cause he's, he's one of these guys who could do more with simple patches of black and white than most other artists could do in a lifetime. And seeing them homaged as street names... Oh, his Batman was wonderful. It's uh, really clear to see that the people who make this show, the fact that they're part of DC Animations aside, are just sincere, true, die-hard, obsessive fans of the source material, and they can respect the greats. Oh yeah, and all of the contributions they made. Them. Yeah, the people. All the contributions yeah. they made to be able to like put them back into the little part of the Batman canon they're recreating around the work that they did it's really lovely and respectful and Brayfogle names actually mentioned in a line by a character but Toth Street is actually just the place they walk past and it's just that sign so huge thanks to writer David Wise and director Kevin Altieri for that in this brilliant brilliant episode I, I again well sounding like Scratch Records loved it nothing to complain about with this one nothing to complain about indeed wonderful great stuff well that does it for another episode and Adam all that's left for us to do is to say where our listeners and fans of the show can find us and send us comments and critiques Uh, to find us you can certainly find me writing for Dark Knight News and DC Comics News reviewing many titles over the weeks sadly quiet these days due to obvious and scary reasons but I am here I am strong and I am still talking about Batman you can find me on our pride and joy fantasticuniverses.com where I discuss many things about role playing in tabletop card games and when the time gets back around to it you can find me at twitch.tv forward slash no ordinary heroes streaming dungeons and dragons and your worst nightmares to talk to us uh, follow me on twitter at izzettinkerer i-z-z-e-t tinkerer yourself sir um, obviously you can find me in many of the same places DC Comics News and Dark Knight News for one simple way of getting all of that stuff just do a search for Steve J. Ray and for our website just do a search for Fantastic Universes or type in fantasticuniverses.com as for DC Comics News and our sister site Dark Knight News you can find us on Facebook Twitter Tumblr YouTube and Instagram and as for this show and all the other shows on the DC Comics News Network, the original DC Comics News podcast, the Spinner Rack, which will start again properly very soon as DC is starting to release new books from tomorrow. So when you're hearing this, I don't know, but this week, uh, last week of April, we'll see brand new DC titles being released, at least digitally. Comic shops apparently will be holding them for readers um, when they reopen. Uh, and you can find our shows also... I Am The Knight, and our brand new Mad Love, the Harley Quinn cast, where you'll see um, my dark side, my side that comes out at night, and that's a show strictly for people old enough to watch the Harley Quinn show, because boy do we beep it up so much in that show. All of them can be found on, obviously, Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and Google Play, along with this show that we love and we make for you every single week. So, Adam Ray, you are the knight. Together, we are the night. And this has been the I Am The Night podcast. Adam, what does everyone out there really need to do? Read more comics. And watch more Batman. Thank you for listening. Bye now.